want to want to just work through a couple logistical things first, uh, and then we're going to kind of chat through uh, actually three chapters in the scripture tonight and uh, spend some time looking at what the Lord has to teach us about that. And so I'm excited for that. Um, but let me let me mention a couple of things. Uh, one, Ma, did you mention Molly? Molly Peters, uh, Scott and Molly Peters uh, had a baby this morning, early this morning, like 5 a.m. Uh, they, they named her Searsha Violet Peters, a healthy baby girl. They're doing well. Uh, and so for those of you who know Scott and Molly, uh, you can rejoice with that. If you don't know Scott and Molly, you should rejoice anyways. Uh, added a new person to the church, right? Like increasing our numbers. Uh, that's... <laughs> Not the, not the only way we want to do it, or even the primary way, but it's always uh, exciting to rejoice when uh, where there's a healthy baby born, and so we're excited about that. Uh, we will send out communication to you in the next couple days if you know them well and you want to care for them by making a meal for them or sending them something. Uh, we'll, we'll send a meal train invitation out so you could sign up to do that over the next couple weeks, and so uh, praise the Lord for that. Uh, the second thing much less exciting and more minor, but also, I think, really important for us. Uh, we, we have been kind of working through trying to keep the, the building in good shape and updating the lobby over the last few months, and so we put up this week uh, some bookshelves and moved some books that were in the library into the lobby, front and center on shelves. Uh, kids' books, adult books, uh, or grown-up books, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what you call those, uh, regular books, and kids' books, and uh, some CDs, a whole bunch of other things in there. Uh, here's, here's what we want you to do with those. You look at those on your way out, and you go, that looks interesting. Um, if you're going to read the book, just take it. Uh, if you feel like, oh, well, I don't want to just take a book. Like, those cost money. That's fine. Throw $10 in the offering the next time you come if you want to pay for it. If you don't have $10 and you want to take the book, just take the book. Uh, we, we put the books out in the lobby that we endorse, uh, that we feel like are generally, though we wouldn't agree with every single thing in a book outside of Scripture, uh, that we, we think this is sound, this is a good place for you to start. And let me just throw this out here for the men especially. Uh, I think what we find in Lafayette County is that men don't read. I'm just being honest with you. By and large, they don't, and so you should uh, that's a discipline you need to learn. Uh, you need to be a part of it. You need, to, you need to just grit it out and do it. And so pick one of those up and force yourself to read it. And then the next one won't be as hard. All right. And so uh, ladies, you read too. But generally speaking, the ladies around here lead, read a lot more than the men do. And so uh, I want to encourage you to do that. We want to try to make that as easy on you as we can uh, because we, we believe in it. All right. So that said, housekeeping out of the way, if you've got a Bible, go with me to John chapter 7. Uh, we're going to spend some time in John's gospel tonight uh, and praise the Lord for it. All right, as you're turning there, I'm going to pray for us. Heavenly Father, grateful for tonight. Now think, about, think about what the Apostle Paul writes. He says that the Christian life is, is one that is sorrowful yet always rejoicing. That, that we come to you as a people who uh, undoubtedly always, always have many things circumstantially that we look to, that we go, ah, we can find sorrow in the heavy, painful, sinful, death-laden world that we live in. And it is hard, and sometimes it is 
painful and sometimes it's heavy and sometimes it's, it's just barely enough to get through that we are a people that have to navigate and watch that and that we're a people who can always be rejoicing. That in the midst of sorrow, there's also great reason for joy and there's significant and exciting and beautiful things happening and you're at work and we get to witness some of those in your kingdom here at hand, yet still anticipating that it comes in fullness eventually. And, and so we look with eager anticipation and excitement and joy, uh, though it is tainted by the sorrow of sin and death and pain. And so uh, as we are a people both sorrowful and always rejoicing, I pray that we would root and found our hope solely and wholly in you, that we would know who you are and that it would cause us to be a people of great joy. Help us, let your spirit move in that way tonight uh, to clarify, to teach, to help us with your identity. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, uh, I wanna take you, so we have, been working now for several weeks through the Gospel of John. And, and we've really said that John's Gospel uh, is a little bit unique even in the Gospel accounts. And when we talk about the Gospel accounts, I'm talking about in the Bible, the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four authors, disciples, or disciples of disciples who are writing about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel is. Jesus is the gospel. Who he was, what he did, his death on the cross, and his resurrection for us is the gospel narrative, right? And so John writes from a perspective uh, that is unique even from the other three. Though they all have some different kind of notes and things and points of emphasis, John is uh, farther away from the other three that we call synoptic gospels because they tell verbatim big parts of the same accounts. John's focus uh, is far different from them. It's much more theological in its nature. Uh, in some ways, you would say it's more simplistic. Uh, John is less concerned by the chronology of all the events that are happening. He's much more concerned, oh yeah, Young people, head with Pastor Dave to children's worship. Go ahead, Roman. Zuri, you get out of here. You're like, man, what's this guy doing? I just forgot. I just forgot. That's it. No good excuse. No reason. I'm getting old, so I don't know what that makes you, but <laughs> I can say that to you. You're, I love you. Uh, here's, here's the thing. John, less concerned about chronology, more concerned about the identity of Jesus. In fact, the whole purpose of his gospel writing, he's going to sum up at the end of the gospel and say, I'm, I'm focusing on the things I'm focusing on so that you would know who Jesus is and believing in him, you would have life. He's talking about spiritual, eternal life. You'd have life in his name, that everything rises and falls on the identity of Jesus. Now, the reason that we said uh, this is so vital and so important for us to really spend time on, and we've kind of worked slowly through this, and, and tonight we're going to take a big chunk uh, that's going to kind of reinforce and summarize some of these things that we've seen already, is because uh, the main narrative in the culture we live in today regarding what it means to be a Christian is generally a good level of 
tolerance or even acceptance with some of the principles and ideals of Christianity so long as they fit into the right boxes and categories and so long as they don't threaten into a space of exclusivity in Jesus, which is problematic because John's entire gospel message is the only thing that really matters is what you do with Jesus. You either know him or you don't know him. It's very much an exclusivity-based gospel. What I, what I mean by that is you either are or you aren't, which is kind of opposite of the prevailing winds of our culture, which is tolerant to Christianity or, or for that matter, any other religious system, so long as it doesn't infringe on any other religious system. Amen? That's, it's, that's the Oprah view of theology, is that as long as you have something, you're in good shape along with everyone else, just don't bother everybody else's something. You, know, you understand what I'm saying here? And so in this, the mentality of Christianity that's really well-perceived and received in the culture is one that uh, spends a heavy emphasis on social justice, which is not to say that we ought to neglect social justice. We ought to be the leaders in caring for people and loving people and being kind to people. It's heavy on an emphasis in doing good things, caring for your neighbors, kind of being the people who are really kind and affectionate and compassionate so long as there is no conviction about what anybody else is doing with their lives, right? And so it takes kind of the half of the gospel that is most palatable culturally and says you can be this and be acceptable inside of the realm of Christianity in our culture. However, uh, what John is pointing out 2,000 years ago continues to be truth and problematic for the culture that we exist in today in that it's not simply about what you do, but John's going to continue to boil things down over and over and over again, looking at the way Jesus interacted with people and say he wasn't all that concerned with the things that they were doing so much as the way that they were responding to him. That the primary emphasis of Jesus' ministry is to bring people to a point where they make a decision about him. Who is he? Uh, and so in this, I want to I kind of walk through multiple accounts throughout John chapter 7, 8, and 9 as he just shows us interaction after interaction after interaction after interaction where Jesus again and again and again and again is going to go back to his identity and call all the people he's interacting with to decide about who he is is. That's, that's primarily what Jesus is doing as he walks through his ministry. Now, in this, you, you got to understand a couple of things, okay? So the, the problem with the exclusivity of Christianity in a culture is that it creates outsiders, right? If you, you don't believe in Christ, you're not okay. The problem philosophically that the culture has is by its nature, every group is exclusive, Right? So let me, let me start here before we kind of walk into the scripture and identify uh, the philosophical reason that uh, believing in Jesus ought to be a dividing factor for us. And then we'll kind of watch as Jesus does this biblically. Groups, by their nature, are exclusive. Christianity is, is not more exclusive than any other group. In fact, the very idea of defining a group would be to create a characteristic that excludes that group from all other groups. Uh, let, let me give you an example of what I mean. Um, 
when I was a, a freshman in college, I went to the University of Michigan, a very large population density school. Uh, in fact, the, the undergraduate class uh, when, I was, when I was there on campus was more than the entirety of Lafayette County. Uh, in like one square mile on campus, more human beings than our entire county. Lots and lots of kids. Most of them, I mean almost all of them, right, ages 18 to 22 years old with almost no grasp or idea on what they thought their life was going to be or a grasp on it but no clear reality as to what it actually was going to be. Not only that, uh, moving there as a freshman, I remember being completely overwhelmed and pretty terrified and lonely that out of these 18,000 some people that were on campus uh, that I wasn't going to be friends with any of them. Amen? How many of you went to college, experienced something like that? You can raise, come on, a little Pentecostal, as close as we get. All right, uh, you, can, you can see that this, like, this is kind of a common experience. And so here's what the University of Michigan did as a way to encourage this. Uh, they said, get involved in a club on campus. And then they had a club, like, sign-up day. First, first week in September, sign-ups came through, and I remember walking. There's like the center of campus. There's about a quarter-mile strip of sidewalk that were, runs in a diagonal fashion, and up and down, every single part of those sidewalks were club booths set up that you could join in every way, shape, form, and thing that you can possibly imagine. They had clubs for different ethnicities. They had clubs for every single sport you could possibly imagine, and a whole lot of things that I would argue aren't really sports, okay? Like, uh, in fact, I got recruited. I, I remember walking with two of my roommates. Uh, one was six foot six, and I, I'm like six two. I'm a pretty tall guy. Uh, and then the other roommate is like five seven-ish. Uh, I got recruited for crew which is just rowing, right? They call that a sport. You're just rowing a boat. That doesn't seem like a sport to me. Uh, but here's what they did. They literally, in the club, are looking for anybody who's tall, you know? And so my six-foot-six buddy gets, like, really singled out. And then, like, they're kind of sizing me and going, you're probably enough, too. And then they look at my other roommate, and they're like, you know, there's other clubs for you, right? Why is that? Well, because he's short. He just doesn't qualify because when he pulls the rows, he, or the, the rows, the oars, Right? I didn't join the club, as you can tell. Uh, not a big fan of just working hard to go down a river. You just go the other direction, right? Uh, and so in this, uh, you have the very nature of the club as exclusive, right? You, you're tall, you qualify. You're short, you don't qualify. In fact, uh, every single club on campus that day and every day is designed by its nature to be exclusive to some identity or ideal that they hold in esteem, right? Uh, in fact, there are many clubs that, quite frankly, I just couldn't be a part of because I didn't qualify or because the value systems that I held were in contrast to the value systems that those clubs held, even the ones that built themselves on being inclusive. Right? Uh, so let me just go straight to a really hot-button issue inside of our culture. Uh, you think about, like, the LGBTQ movement that has really kind of taken fire over the last 15, 20 years in our culture. And there was, at that time, I mean, this is the, the 
kind of leading edge of this. There were clubs that were really focused on being an ally in such a, such a movement, right? Now, here's, here's what I could have done. Could have walked in and said, what are you guys about? They would have told me, you know, we just, we just believe we want to be inclusive to everybody. We want to care for everybody. We don't want to be intolerant. And we don't want to be a people who make judgments. And we don't want to be a people who are, uh, you know, out there saying that something is wrong. Who are we to judge others? And I would say, well, you know, I'm an orthodox Christian, esteem, uh, conservative Christian values, uh, believe that homosexuality is sinful, uh, so sign me up. Come on, they let me be president? I don't think so, right? So, so even clubs that define by their nature inclusivity are indeed exclusive. That's, that's what makes groups groups, that they're e- exclusive in some way, shape, or form. Now, Scripture is going to identify that Jesus is our litmus test of what makes you a Christian or not, a follower or not, saved or not, only Jesus. Now, now here is why this is so vital to us, because most, most of our culture and most of our religious, moral, upright people, according to our culture, have found that they define themselves by what they do and what they don't do instead of by who Jesus is. So, so we can kind of get into the kind of evil side of culture or the, the side of culture that maybe you kind of shy away from the most. However, I think in the day and age and place that we live in, one of the most dangerous things is not simply that there is an inclusivity that, that sort of molds all of the culture and says we should just try to make everything right except for anything that yields to orthodox views of Christianity, but rather that a real danger in the places that we live, work, and do life are people who are convinced that their identity is wrapped up in what a good person they are and what good things that they do, and Jesus consistently is going to call them upon it. In fact, that's the most frequent group he interacts with, and it's the harshest group that he responds to with consistency are those who have tried to justify themselves by their moral deeds. And so as we get into John 7, we've kind of walked through these different parts of the narrative and watched Jesus do these really uh, interesting things as he's interacting with people and he's beginning to reveal more and more of his identity. And we've kind of looked at them and went, "This this is who Jesus is. And over and over again, he goes back to calling them to his identity. Well, now John's just gonna look at three full chapters that are almost entirely filled with dialogue. There's, there's almost nothing happening here in John chapter 9. We'll get to a kind of a miracle that kind of occurs in there. But most of it is built upon him in Jerusalem teaching and arguing with people about this. Look at John chapter 7. Uh, pick up with me in verse 10 and you'll see kind of where this uh, originates from. It says, But when his brothers had gone up to the feast in Jerusalem, he himself also went up. Not publicly, but as if in secret. So he doesn't make a big deal about it, but he heads down to Jerusalem for the feast that is going on. And it says the Jews were seeking him at the feast. And they're saying, where is he? 
there was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. So here's the thing. 2,000 years ago, the arguments are primarily the same as they are today. Who is this Jesus? What do, you, what do you do with him? Is he a good man? Is he leading people astray? And here's what you're going to watch. Jesus, in his responses, is going to go, it's not either of those, it's more. All of this is based on my identity. And so Jesus, over and over again, is going to introduce people to his identity. And I, here's, here's what I want to do. I just want to pick out some verses throughout the next three chapters. And don't freak out. i got nine points and then two implications. That's not a Baptist message. Normally we're going three. I'm doing three sermons in one, but I promise you the points are fast. Here's, here's what happens. He begins to converse with them, and in this conversation, it says down in verse 25, some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they were seeking to kill? Look, he's speaking publicly, and say, they're saying nothing to him. They're trying to figure out who he is, and then he cries out in the temple, you both know me, this is verse 28, and know where I'm from, and I have not come from myself. But he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. So watch how Jesus begins to identify himself. Here's the first one. I am from him. He's talking about God the Father. And in fact, they're going, isn't this the guy? This is the guy that they were trying to kill earlier. This is the guy who they were real worried about. Remember, Jesus, in his time in Jerusalem thus far, has had some kind of run-ins, if you will, with the leading Jews of the day. Uh, that kind of happens when you go into the temple and you flip over all their tables and kick out all of their animals and call them robber's dens. And, and so out of this, they're, they're after him, he says, I know him because I am from him. And so out of this, they begin to kind of push back a little bit. And then it picks up in verse 32. It says, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. And therefore, Jesus said, for a little while longer, I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me. So here's, here's what Jesus does right out of the gate in these, this conversation. First, he claims that he is from God, and then he claims he's going to God, and then he claims that God sent him. Jesus is in the context being very clear about his identity and claiming some things that put him beyond the status of good man or well beyond the status of lead people astray. In fact, if they're not true, maybe he's right inside of the status of leading people astray because he's beginning to equate himself with God as his own father. Now, they're uh, a little frustrated by this. In fact, uh, they, don't, they don't even understand it. They start to say to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He's not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? They're, they're thinking, he's just going to go out into the wilderness and teach some people who aren't of Jewish descent. Is that what he means? And he's going, no, no, no. I mean, heaven. And out of this, look at how he responds. It says, at verse 37, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Now, now hear this as Jesus begins to reveal more and more and more of his identity. 
Verse 38, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. I, I just want you to think about such a claim. Jesus says, from me will flow rivers of living water. This is very similar to what he said to that Samaritan woman at the well just a few chapters earlier in John chapter 4, right? If, if you would have asked, I would have given you living water. From me is a well springing up to eternal life that I give a water that creates a need to never thirst, that I offer something bigger and better. Now, here's, here's the thing. Either this is true or this is idolatry, right? Uh, Jesus' request here or Jesus' command here is not to do good things. It's to trust in him as the one who offers living water. Uh, we, we have a homeschool community that meets here on Fridays. And so uh, throughout the year, we kind of take one theme in the Bible and teach uh, this to our community. And so this year, we've been working through the book of Acts, which is this uh, book about the early church and what the early church does and, and how they are traveling through. And so we're in Acts chapter 19 right now. And in that part of the context, Paul, the apostle, who is... Uh, taking and journeying through all these different lands as a missionary, is telling people about Jesus. He shows up in the city of Ephesus, and things are crazy in Ephesus. You go read Acts chapter 19 this week uh, and see, it's just, it's just a wild scene. Paganism at its finest, people practicing all kinds of magic, doing incredible things. In fact, God has supernaturally empowered Paul in some pretty awesome ways that uh, even people who are touching his handkerchief are being healed from various diseases, which is like crazy, right? Like here's my used Kleenex and it's making you well. And so out of this, they're so excited about it. In fact, uh, the, the chaos that it has stirred up is caused some other people to try to cast out demons by the name of Paul. It works out really bad for them, also in Acts chapter 19. However, the, the main point of emphasis in the account is Paul goes and, and begins to disrupt the city as he's proclaiming a Jesus who is not made with human hands or served by human hands as if he needs anything. That God is bigger than any idol you can create. And what's really fascinating is this guy, Demetrius, who leads the, the temple of all these pagan gods, freaks out along with his friends. Uh, they start a massive riot in Ephesus. And here's, here's the reason. Because all of what they were about, their whole focus of their business was to build things that people would come to to offer up sacrifices for so that they would feel like they had done their religious duty so that they had satisfied the gods so that they could continue on in their life. That's called idolatry. But, but here's what we taught the homeschool community on Friday. Um, the book of Ezekiel, this, this Old Testament prophet, talks about what the Israelites did uh, in their idolatry. Because uh, he recognizes that the very first commandment that God gives in the law is that you should have no other gods before me. And then he goes to the Israelite people and says, you have set up idols in your hearts. He said, your idolatry was not literal like those in Ephesus who went to the temple of Artemis and began to offer sacrifices, but rather that you had laid yourself down at something other than me and found your source of life in that thing. And so think about it in this context. Jesus goes, listen, you believing in me 
from the innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Your life, your relationship with God depends on you believing in me. Either it's true or I'm asking you to set up me as an idol in the context of your heart, right? This is either true or it's horrific, arrogant, self-serving, and really leading people astray. Amen? Do you see, you see how that works? you see the logical progression? In fact, uh, the, the Pharisees are going to call him on this. You flip the page, go ahead a little bit to Acts chapter, or, uh, John chapter 8 and see how he does this. Uh, he says, again, this is verse 12 of Acts 8, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light. Offer living water. I am the light of the world. He goes on just a few verses later and says, I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father, he who sent me, testifies to me, testifies about me. The reason he says that is because the response to him being the light of the world and the one that offers living water is the Pharisees look at him and they say, you're testifying about yourself. Your testimony isn't true. Their accusation is this. In your arrogance, you are claiming yourself to be the source of life. And, and they're halfway correct. He certainly is. In fact, uh, the idea that Jesus is primarily a moral good teacher or that Jesus offers us a guidebook of life and the things that we can do so that we can be okay in the way that we live is not truth and it's not even contextually accurate to what Jesus teaches. You want to see what Jesus teaches, just read the Bible consistently again and again and again. The commandment of Jesus is not do better and be a good person. It is believe in me. I offer living water. I am the light of the world. I am the one who is from the Father. He sent me. I'm going back to him. It always comes back to me. Look, at he continues to double down on this. You go down to verse 23 of chapter 8, and it says, he says back to the Pharisees again, you're from below, and I'm from above. You're from this world, and I'm not from this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Jesus, Jesus is saying, I am the source of life, and not only that, there is no life outside of me. You don't believe in me? You're going to die in your sins. That He's not even talking about physical death. He's talking about spiritual death. You will be separated from me if you don't believe in me. You will experience death in your sins. And then he keeps going and says, when you, this is verse 28, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me, and he has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. That consistently I am pleasing to the Father. When you lift up the Son of Man, that's a reference back in John chapter 3. If you remember, Jesus has this conversation with Nicodemus. And Nicodemus goes, well, how am I going to know who you are? And he says, just like the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. That he will 
become the one who brings about your salvation. You're going to make me into the one who is bringing your salvation because I always do the things that are pleasing to the Father. Now, all of this comes to a head in two things, one at the end of chapter 8 and one at the beginning of chapter 9, and then we'll, we'll talk about why, finish with why this matters so much for us. He continues to kind of battle back and forth, argue with these religious leaders who have made their living based on an idea that you and I ought to work harder, be better, do our best, and we could be good enough. And Jesus is going, it's not, it's not about that. You've got to believe in me. And then out of this, their argument is, well, think about it. Abraham is the one who God chosen, and we're from Abraham. We're God's chosen people. Surely you're not greater than Abraham. This is a common thing that Jesus is going to interact with throughout the Gospels. Think about how frequent this is. John chapter 4, we saw this, uh, when the woman at the well goes, hey, Jacob gave us this well. That's Abraham's grandson, right? Jacob gave us this well. Uh, surely you're not greater than Jacob, are you? They're going to ask him if he's greater than John the Baptist. They're going to ask him if he's greater than Moses. They're going to ask him if he's greater than Abraham because the natural humanistic thing to be in our humility is, no, I'm not greater than them. And Jesus does not take that bait. Instead, look at John 8, 58. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Yeah, I'm greater than Abraham. I'm before Abraham, that all of this was about me, that it's always going to come back to me. And then out of all of this, John's very next interaction, he talks about this man who is blind that Jesus heals. And, and the, the religious leaders who have now spent chapters and, and conversation after conversation after conversation watching Jesus identify who he is, are angry again that he's healed someone on the Sabbath. They're, they're blinded to who he is. And then here's what happens. The man comes back and finds Jesus. And in John 9, verse 35, it says, Jesus heard that they had put him out, and he finds him, finds the man. And he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? The guy who now has his sight answers and says, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking to you. I'm the one who gave you sight. You saw me, and now I'm talking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And then look at this. And he worshipped him. And, and here's the thing. And Jesus accepts his worship and the pharisees are enraged about it because because here's who accepts worship god does in fact consistently throughout the bible the thing that is treated with a great deal of respect and a great deal of fear is that god alone ought to be worshiped and this uh like I said, we're kind of teaching through the book of Acts in our homeschool community. Just a few chapters, a few weeks ago, a few chapters earlier, in Acts chapter 12 and Acts chapter 13, you see uh, this kind of treatment of worship happening in the early church in two interactions. So the first is this guy named Herod, who is uh, a really corrupt 
governing authority in the land of Jerusalem, uh, he begins to do some things that the crowd finally are really pleased with. And so pandering to the crowd, he starts to do some things that they get more excited about. And they begin to call out to him in worship and say, this is like a God, not a man. And here's, here's what's really fascinating about the Bible. He does not reject their worship. He accepts their worship. And God kills him immediately. Like right, right there, no, 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 this is man, this is not God. Just a chapter after that, Paul and Barnabas, these guys who are missionaries, proclaiming the gospel, head out, and as they are speaking the good news of Jesus and incredible things are happening, the crowds get so excited about it, they say, the gods have come down among us and here they are and they start calling uh paul hermes and barnabas zeus and they're like these guys are gods in human form and you know what they do they're terrified of it and they go stop stop we're just like you we're men because because here's what they recognize we're not worthy of worship god alone's worthy of worship and yet here's what jesus consistently does in the scriptures he commands for and allows us to worship him, showing us it's God alone. So, so over and over and over again, Jesus, interaction after interaction after interaction, is going to do this. He's going to minimize who we are, and he's going to magnify who he is. And John, over and over and over and over again in the gospel, is just going to point out that Jesus, in every interaction, is primarily concerned with what you do with him. So, so here's the implication. This is, this is what this means for us. Jesus' identity, who Jesus is, that is the gospel, that is the point of exclusion. Either you get it or you don't, which means that what the gospel message ultimately is about, what Christianity ultimately is about, is what you do with Jesus, not what you do with your good works, not with what you do with your morality, not with what you do with your efforts and your trying in your own flesh. And that ought to be great news for all of us because if the gospel message, according to Jesus, was you should be kind to everybody you meet, and you should love your neighbor better, and you should do things to be somebody who really serves God, you know where all of us would be? Dead in our sins. Because you can't do it. Because you can't do it, and I can't do it. Because, because I'm selfish and self-oriented, and prideful, and sinful, and I just don't love you the way I love me. It's not very nice, but I don't. Some of you even less than others. Not you, though. And you know what's true? You don't love me the way you love you. And that's true of everyone. And so if Jesus comes and his message is ultimately, you better do better. Boy, that's a damning message, isn't it? But praise the Lord, it is not. The message is this. 
you believe in the Son of Man because I offer you living water. And, and then here's the last thing. And this, this ought to both bring and elicit some fear and, and a whole lot of trust. The very next verse says, after this man begins to worship him, Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to Jesus, we're not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you'd have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. What's he mean by that? The way to know Christ is to stop thinking you can do it on your own. He says your, your sin is believing that you've got no issues. Your sin is believing pridefully that you see. And because of that, your sin remains. Because all you need to do is open your eyes and see me. Behold, before Abraham was, I am. It's always going to be about this. What are you going to do with Jesus? He is the one that you make the decision about. Pray with me. Lord, I'm thankful thankful that we are not responsible for our own salvation. I'm thankful that even as you send your son into the world for judgment, that we can trust that, that our judgment doesn't fall on our ability to do things right and our ability to be nice and our ability to be kind and our ability to be selfless and our ability to keep and uphold the law because we can't. I'm so thankful that like blind people, we just need our eyes opened to behold you, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Lord, make us see. Make us be a people who humble ourselves and place all of our trust in you, that it's always going to be about you in all things, in all interactions, in all parts of our life that we would trust you. Help us with it, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name.